This episode is dedicated to Casey Bach, Patrick, Alejandro, and Gregory Lewis for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Maurice. And this is Fight Study. On today's fight study, we have special guest Maurice Shelton here to talk to us about MMA, politics, and Japan. Maurice is an MMA fighter on hiatus. I know you're not officially retired. And though you live in Japan, we still connected because the lefty MMA milieu is small and the lefty BIPOC MMA milieu even smaller. So it was only a matter of time. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sam. Thank you. And uh, actually, I don't want to speak for you. You've trained in lots of gyms and all over the world. So what would you say is the left of liberal MMA scene like? Is it big? Is it small? Is it non-existent? Uh, I can put it like this. Um, for those of you that have uh, any anime fans out there, I compare it to walking around like Kenshiro and Fist of North Star um, <laughs> to find other uh lefty or like leftist people that are actually leftist uh and also are like uh mma fans or practitioners so it's uh it's been kind of lonely out there because for me i usually try to qualify people with a few questions when i start to train or i enter a, a training space so um very rare. Very, it's like once in every, like, not even a blue moon that I find people that are like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I agree with your views. So. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the gyms you've trained in? Um, I first officially started, well, let's rewind. So um, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Atlanta. I'm born and r raised in the American South. So, um, um, but boxing was really my first love because everybody around me loved boxing. Um, so, um, I always had a outside dream, like maybe one day I would go join the amateurs and then actually just fight, um, for a living. I always would talk about it, but I was one of those guys too chicken shit to actually do it until, um, I moved to Japan. 
But um, I had dabbled um, at boxing gyms in Washington, D.C. I, I think the, I went to city boxing. Um, I had trained also at Lloyd Irvin's gym for a short time in Washington, in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, but work and life got in the way. So um, um, I would bounce around. I, 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 I visited so many gyms i can't even name i can't even begin to name how many but uh a brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms kickboxing gyms whatever um but when i finally made a life change i went to japan the first time in 2010 september of 2010 and i joined a small gym um in yokohama actually um very small gym i visited a couple gyms um one of the gyms i visited first um and it gave me like kind of a a that my spidey sense was tingling. Um, it was a, a gym associated with uh, Barrett Yoshida. And um, the people, when they brought me in, um, they just wanted to see what I could do. And I, I just showed them, like, you know, my stand-up. And the guy, he was just oohing and on about my jab and my boxing stance. He was like, yeah, you see, of course. Like, you're, you know, you're, you know, I could feel like you're just this big black guy. Of course, you're, like, really strong at, you know, <laughs> uh, boxing. But, um nobody was really trying to connect with me as like uh as like a person first it was just like i'm i'm the foreigner first and foremost i'm big and strong obviously um i know how to do this stuff because it it comes naturally it's like you, you didn't even ask me about my background or anything so um <laughs> i didn't join that gym to say the least um so i i ended up joining the gym right uh above it uh, which was like it's a small gym it was a feeder gym for a local a couple of local semi-regional um, promotions that's associated with um um akira maeda rings network so uh i ended up um training there semi full-time I, I i was still looking for a job once i made the decision um after my first fight i did everything like bass backwards i i um, <laughs> uh, i told people that i wanted to train and i always i was always a fan of mma boxing you know kickboxing, you, you name it, any combat sport, like if it was on TV or like ESPN or ESPN2 growing up, I wanted to watch just because I was um, physically a small person, um, not small at heart, but just physically small around a bunch of people that would go on to like NFL or NBA or something like that. Uh, so I always had that, that chip on my shoulder, like kind of a Napoleonic complex. Um, but I ended up just saying, you know, forget it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll try it once because, uh, when I, the, the circumstances of me going to Japan were, I was just coming to visit. Um, I didn't actually intend on staying or, um, I didn't have an explicit desire to stay, um, because Japan, when I first moved or when I first came here, um, it was my first time outside of the United States. So, um, I ended up, um, joining the gym because the, the, the second guy that I, I had seen, um, he was very welcoming and I should have taken that as kind of like a red flag. Cause it was like, there was nobody in there and he's like, yeah, you can join, like, just come on. And, you know, but, um, I was looking for a place to get back into shape because the jobs that I was working, uh, right up until the point that I, I made the decision to, to visit Japan, uh, required me to work, you know, anywhere from 65 to 85 hours a week. You know, I was working in sales, so I got out of shape. Um, by my own standards, like some people would see me and say, oh, Maurice, you you know, you still look good. You're a young guy. You know, you're in good shape. I'm like, no, like you should have seen me like two years ago. Um, I was, you know, I could walk around my shirt off with no, no problem. Um, <laughs> but um, I ended up doing that. Um, 
And when I say pass backwards, you know, um, I ended up taking an amateur fight um, two months after I started training for the first time officially. So I had dabbled here and there. I had taken, you know, five months off here. I, oh, I got to go to work or my schedule doesn't match up. But I had all this knowledge and I had to like kind of put it together. But um, as many of your listeners might already know, like the psychology of actually stepping into the ring is there's a big difference between like sparring, training, setting up a training camp and then actually saying, you know what, I got to get my ass in there and have somebody try to knock my head off. Um, There's a big jump in the uh, in the motivation and the the energy. Um, So. Uh, for me, I had always had um, stage fright. I'm, I'm an anxious person. Like to this day, I'm anxious. I'm like anxious right now talking. <laughs> so it was like, uh, I um, I can say I was proud of myself in, in just making the leap because for, uh, I want to say about seven or eight years, I had been hesitating to just just do it, to just, you know, make the leap and to actually uh, take a chance on myself. Um, even though, um, looking back, it was still ill, Ill- advised because I had only really been training seriously for about, yeah, about six to eight weeks. Um, uh, so I actually, and the bat, the, there's a silver lining or I don't know how you would say there's a, uh, there's a reverse of the silver lining in the cloud, you know? So I won my first, um, amateur match, which was probably not a good thing because, it kept me going. <laughs> uh, so the, the scout um, or the, the talent scout for the, the amateur event, um, they approached the gym manager of my gym and said, hey, why don't we just put this guy in in a pro match like um, next month? So, uh, you know, one amateur match, no experience really with fighting, you know, because uh, when I would do uh, when I would join my box, um, when I had joined my boxing gym a few years before that, I only did a little bit of sparring. You know, it was really just to stay in shape and to just stay in the groove of things. Um, I was mainly training solo because I was working on K Street. Um, I would get off of work at like 7, 7.30, sometimes 9. Um, so I would have to go to like the local YMCA to train by myself. And then if I had time, I would join um training with other people at the at the at the local gym um so getting hit in the face was like still kind of unfamiliar to me um so um, by the time i got ready uh, for the first match um my first pro match um i was still like i probably only had like two or three like live sparring sessions like hard sparring um so uh the guy that i fought uh uh, he went on to be the one, um, one FC champion, one FC welterweight champion. Uh, so I was, I was a jobber. I was a jobber. They, they brought me in and my logic was, you know, I'm going back to America anyway, and nobody will know about this. You know, it'll just be like a cool story. Like, yo, I got in and I actually was a pro fighter for like, you know, a couple of weeks. Like, wow. Like, look at me, um, went in there and got my block knocked off. Um, I did actually. Okay better than i expected because i thought i was just going to go in there and get demolished um once i got once all the 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 pre-fight nerves really got to me i was like holy shit like what am i doing like (laughs) but then i went in there i was like okay let me go ahead and do this like when i walked down um first fight was at uh different ariake yeah so different ariake got 
demolished, uh, I think, three years ago. Um, but, you know, a long lineage of like, if, if anybody out there is listening to like Pride, uh, that, that are Pride fans, you know, like a long lineage of people that have actually walked that same walk that I did. I'm like, yeah, I shared the same space with like some legends. So I'm like, at least I can say that. But when I went, I went in there, okay, there's a calm, but then there was like kind of a panic that hit me. Okay. Like I'm actually doing this shit. This is ridiculous. What am I doing? <laughs> so it's kind of the inverse story that people have when they go to Thailand for Muay Thai, right? Because Thailand is so designed for Western tourists. You train a little bit and then they find you somebody that they know for sure you can beat. And I don't know if they even tell the other person, like, just lose to this guy. Yeah, but yeah. everybody has their, like, I went to Thailand, fought pro, and I won story, right? But in Japan, <laughs> it's the other way. In Thailand, they find you a jobber, whereas in Japan, you're the jobber. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think it plays into the dynamics of Thailand now is a client state of Western hegemony. So you have a lot of people that understand the dynamics of Western money coming in through the tourism industry. Whereas with Japan, they do need the tourism money, but they've prided themselves over, you know, over the past like century and a half. You know, they were an empire. They were the ones that were actually coming in and spending the money and, and, and dominating people. We have a, this thing called Hone and Tatumai where um, Japanese um people usually don't wear their emotions out uh, on their sleeve. Um, they, 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 they're very polite, uh, very hospitable, but the real, the ulterior motive, the realness, you know, you, you get that in the MMA circles. Like they're not going to really treat you when it's all said and done. They're not going to treat you like you're above them. You're below them. It, it depends on who you are. Cause I'm, I'm black. Um, I didn't mention that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, for anybody listening to me, if you can't tell by now, I'm black. Uh, <laughs> uh, so some people that are white are, uh, if they, they appear to be Asian or Asian American, they might have a completely different experience. I can't speak for everybody, but I know from other people that have, um, um, had these, uh, um, experience, similar experiences as me. Um, they say, well, yeah, you know, you get, um, almost fetishized, uh, to the point where, you're like kind of like an uh, uh, an animal in the zoo, like on display. Uh, so it's like they're putting you on a pedestal, but at the same time, they're like kind of confining you. Um, so yeah, you might you might get a jobber um, in Japan, but there's another equally or maybe greater chance that you're gonna just get your ass whooped. Like they're just gonna show you that you can't just come in here because we're the we're the top dogs here, and you're you know you're just you. Um, which I think happened to me that the latter happened to me. So um, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, um, yeah, Thailand versus Japan, because Japan, again, like I, I always tell people, you know, um, when we start talking about the geopolitics and like our Asian identity or like, you know, the hierarchy within like Asian countries or like how people treat foreigners and all that stuff. I'm like, no, man, like um, here in, East Asia, if you want to say, call it that, you know, because there's always a delineation between South Asia, Southeast Asia. Like even here in Japan, like you hear Japanese people saying like, oh, you know, Southeast Asia, like those people over there. Like they, I'm like, y'all sound like white people, like Japanese people are the white people of Asia. Huh. <laughs> like, I mean, they have some competition, but for a long time, they were the 
the top economic power. And, you know, that's obviously changed in the past 15 years, uh, 20 years, really, um, after the bubble pop in the in uh, in the 20th century. So um, you still have people that hold on to the belief that um, they're still number one, except for those white folks over there, like in America or like maybe Europe. Um, and those people that come here, um, they oftentimes do get elevated to um, to a privileged position. Um, and that's in the fight world. Um, that's in the entertainment world as well. Um, and I'm an English teacher as well. So you see it same, same thing in um, English education. You know, um, I've been rejected. <laughs> I've, I've actually interviewed for jobs. Um, you know, they, we did a phone interview and they got my, e- uh, my, my resume and my email and all that stuff. Um, we corresponded for a f- couple of weeks and then we actually, um, meet face to face when they saw me, they're like, wait a minute. Um, you're not what we thought. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your time. We'll call you like, don't call us. We'll call you, you know, oftentimes you'll see people, regardless of what their political strain is, they might even be on the left say that white people can face racism depending on where Mm -hmm. they are on the planet. And a point you're making maybe indirectly when you're talking about anti-blackness is there's also white supremacy, the other side of that anti-blackness coin, right? Yes, yes. And so having seen this also in Korea and speaking to my diverse group of Asian friends that I have, right? Wherever they're from, they all say the same thing about how when white people come, they're privileged above other foreigners. I can't say for sure they're privileged above their own people, mm-hmm. but there's no place on earth that they're going to face racism, right? They're always going to have a certain amount of privilege. And if you go back to historical contexts like with Cuba or Vietnam or Philippines, it actually reinforces colorism because wherever white tourists go, they often use the lightest skinned person to be their compradors or the people who service them, right? Exactly. Hmm. Then they indirectly get elevated even more. It's because they perceive that, or not even perceive, but from experience, they found that white people liked the lighter skinned people more. And then that elevated them because of proximity to whiteness in their own country. So it it exacerbated Hmm. colorism. So ultimately, just as there's anti-blackness that will follow you as a black person wherever you go, the same thing will happen to a white person in reverse. There will be white supremacy wherever they go. They will have a certain privilege wherever they go. Yeah. And I, um, obviously I've had these discussions, kind of discussions before off, um, off camera, off mic. Um, something that comes up often, uh, in like some of the, the online groups, like maybe on Facebook or like message boards and you see like, uh, there's a, there's a website called like Gaijin pot or whatever, or Facebook groups, uh, Tokyo expat group. Um, some people, you, you'll see some white residents of, especially like Tokyo, they'll say, yeah, I got treated badly because I was, um, because I was a white person. But then you get into, especially with Japan, they're notorious for being xenophobic. Um, so, you know, you have all these stories of, you know, you know, people that appear to be white saying, yeah, you know, I, I was denied, um, my housing application. I couldn't rent, um, an apartment here or, um, I got harassed or I got, you know, um, I was a victim of, uh, you know, some type of bad treatment because I was filling the blank. So like, and then for me or another, you know, um, foreigner, um, or foreign residents of Japan or Tokyo, you know, yeah, like got to really temper it because those experiences are valid, but it was like, okay, like, how do you 
it's always that gray area. Like, how do you draw that line between like, okay, like they hate your ass because you're you're white or they hate your ass because you're a foreigner, you know, because if you're a guy, Coco Jean or guy Jean, as, as they call it, um, a lot of times we all get lumped into the same, um, the same basket, you know, in the same box. Um, but there's, there's levels to that shit. You yeah. Know? Um, and, and a lot of people that have never had to actually analyze or actually deal with that treatment, they're like, Oh, I, this is what they feel like. Oh my God, it's so racist. It's like, nah, dog, man. Like, no, you different, but you still like can walk into like a building down in Shinagawa, like somewhere, you know, in the Yamanote line. And, you know, you, the cops are not going to stop you and try to like frisk you, you know, like I've been, you know, I've been stopped and frisk in the, in the streets of Tokyo before, like several times, actually, um, because I look like I fit the description. It was like, shit, like this is, is this America? Like, you know, like, cause I have dreadlocks, you know? So it's like, yeah, you look dangerous. Like you're not going to get that, you know, as a, as a white woman, you got other you got other things to fear, you know, cause like, you know, for women, they, you know, it was a kind of a controversy last night on social media about, um, people talking about how safe it is in Tokyo, like during the Olympics, you know, obviously we're in a time of a pandemic, but, um, there's always this argument that, yeah, Japan is such a safe country, you know, women can come here and they can be, you know, they can have relative, uh, like peace of mind compared to other big cities around the world. And all these women are chiming up and they got like 15 stories each, you know, like, yeah, this dude followed me home or this dude like rubbed up against me on the train. It's like, yeah, that's a that's a different battle um, that you have to fight. But like, it's not because, you know, like they hate white people like it's because you're a foreigner. First and foremost, it's not anti-white racism. I don't I I ain't heard of it, you know, like it's nativism. Yeah, nativism. And that, and, and that's a direct result of like people being indoctrinated, um, that they're number one, um, over, you know, however long the empire lasted, um, here in Japan. So, um, for me, like I, I, you know, people would ask me like, um, as I, as I went along, like after, from my first fight and then like, as I like continued on, like professionally as like, as a fighter slash like personality, a public face, whatever. Like, yeah, I learned to just embrace being the outsider. You know, I love outcasts, you know, I'm from Atlanta. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not going, you know, there's, there's different um, levels to like the the types of foreigners that come here. And, you know, for me, I've always been interested in um, Japanese culture and Japanese, uh, you know, things um, from an early age. Um, But I never thought I was going to be like a weeb, like a complete, like weeaboo, like someone that's going to try to become Japanese because I already understood um, as a black person in America, you know, I'm not going to try to be white. You know, I'm, I got to be who I am because if I, if I chase after a, an identity that is not me, then I, I'm probably going to live like a half fulfilled life. And it's probably going to be really shitty. Um, and it's the same thing here. It's like, I'm never going to be um, uh, Nijin. I'm never going to be uh, Nihonjin. I'm never going to be, that person that's on the in group, I'm on the out group and I'm okay with that. So, and, you know, I had this conversation with a, a few of my friends, really old friends, um, a few weeks ago, they was like, yo, when did you first know that you were black? You know, it's like, shit, I always knew I was black, man. Like I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't black, but for some people from a different socioeconomic class, um, anti-blackness 
in anti-black racism and just white supremacy is one of those sneaky amorphous things where you don't even know it's like a water it's like a fish not knowing what water is a fish not knowing that it's wet you know um you're swimming around and you don't even know that it's actually affecting you and that it's conditioning you to believe a certain thing about you until it like just it's just there like for example like you know the doll test um so anti-blackness uh, for me is seeing the confederate flag and knowing like just deep down like instinctually like it's something that because i already had to talk to my parents like okay you need to watch out for these types of situations i knew that those people were not for me um and we don't have to have a discussion so like i would i would have this um this argument with like friends of mine that were from the northern part of the united states or even from from the um, western uh, from the west coast you know they're like oh yeah you know we're not so racist like the southerners you know like yeah they're calling black people the n-word and da 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 i'm like nah man like for me i prefer it that way because like guess what if i'm in a room like we we vibing and we're listening to like hip-hop music and rap and all that stuff like black culture we're like con- you know con- um, consuming that stuff and then you just drop the n-bomb in, in one of the songs and you think this shit is cool like I gotta check you because no one you weren't you didn't grow up around black people so you don't know that a lot of the stuff that you you consume and the things that you say are anti-black at its very foundations you know like when you say the word ghetto oh my god Maurice you're so ghetto like I would hear that from people that were from outside of the south all the time um, or that um, certain things oh you don't really sound black I got that from like I got that from non-black people I'm like how do you know what black sounds like? You know, like there's no one black experience, but because you want to conflate and, and, and kind of constrain the identity of what it means to be black in America, like that, that in and of itself is anti-black. Um, so you get the same thing in Japan where, for example, I, I've done acting, I've done modeling. Um, and when I, when I have, I have that deja vu moment, I'm like, oh, these Japanese people have been in America or they've been consuming just like a lot of American media and they believe they've drank the Kool-Aid. They believe the shit. They believe the lies, the bullshit. Um, there was, um, um, a couple of jobs that I auditioned for and, um, they would tell me in audition, like, we just want you to be more animated. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Because like, I know how to act a little bit, but like, you're trying to make it seem like I'm a caricature of black people. And like, you, as a, any black folks out there listening, you know, when someone's trying to make you like shuck and or jive, you know, you know, it. it's a um, great movie. If anybody wants a movie recommendation and watch uh, Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle, it's a great, it's a, it's a great um, treatise on like the experience of black um, or African-American or whatever you want to call it, African people that have to deal with the entertainment industry, especially Hollywood, um, where you have to almost compromise yourself to try to make it. Um, and for me, I've, I've turned down many jobs. I've turned down several opportunities where they wanted me to portray black people in a, in a negative light. I've had fights with the agents where I would tell them like, um, I don't have a price, you know, for certain roles. Like if you want me to be like a terrorist or like a, a a criminal, uh, or typical, uh, quote unquote street thug, you know, there's no amount of money that you're going to put on that anyway, even though like the, you know, with a lot of the, 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 the structure of the, um, the industry here, like you got a lot of people, a lot of middlemen, a lot of people just taking money 
profiting off of uh, black identity, black culture, black music, black everything. You know, it, it's it's cool to be black until it's not right. So they they need avatars like me, who probably not, uh, haven't necessarily had the same experience as someone from another place, but it's all black to them. Um, so they have a genre of music. They just call it black music. So black music could be like just anything, R and B, soul, hip hop, dance, EDM, anything. Um, and, but it's just, if it has a black face on there, it's good enough for them. Um, so it's one of those things where blackness gets flattened. Um, we get put in a box and that in in that and of itself you're not allowed to just be a person i feel that's anti-black because you know you're taking away people's personhood you're just you know for me i am proud to be black but i'm a person first right um um i'm a black person that's an integral part of me but when you see me i've had this discussion with some of my acquaintances they're like oh i don't see color they try to you know you know, and I have Asian people saying this too. It's like, I don't really judge off of like color. You know, I just see you as a person. It's like, no, that's bullshit. Like you treat me differently because I'm black and that's fine. You, you can, we can be open about that. You know, like, um, it doesn't have to be a bad thing to be different, but, um, I think, um, my experience as someone who uses, who used his body, I'm, I mean, I still use my body as, as a product, as, as a commodity, you know, I'm an actor. Um, I've been a model. Um, I've been a fighter. I've, I've shed blood to entertain people. Um, that that's pretty much the same. Like and if you're doing a class analysis, you know, it's, it's capitalism one on one, man. Like, I, you know, like somebody's trying to control my means of production, man. Like a lot of times I don't have control over it. I've had fights over this where I'm like, yo, I, if I'm going to do this labor, I want to be paid fairly. I want to be treated, you know, like a person first and foremost, but I want to be um, compensated for my time, you know. But you have a lot of people that think because if I appear that I'm from the global south or that I'm from a from a uh, marginalized group that they can take advantage, you know, and and it's reflexive. They don't even think about it. It's just like uncon, like just subconsciously. They're just like, yeah, no, he's black. You know, like we ain't got to pay him that much, you know, um, almost like kind of like the South Asians or the Southeast Asians that that come here to work. You know, Filipinos like if you if you get any Filipinos that have lived here in Japan on. I don't know if you've had them on before same deal like in the english teaching uh, world you know like automatically um you got plenty of people that um are filipino filipino american they speak english fluently but they get looked upon as like not quote-unquote non-native english speakers like why because you're asian it's like no nah, like you were born and raised in like california but like you know um <laughs> people still looking at you like your english is not as good or you know it's the same deal for like people that are not japanese um, but up here, Asian, you know, Chinese, American, um, Thai, um, Korean, whatever. And like they come and they, once people figure out, they like, they get found out like, aha, you're not Japanese. Now we got to treat you this way. It's like, you see, it, it's like a switch that like turns on or off, depending on how you look at it. Um, <laughs> like, um, the customer service, like, uh, that people get, um, and you know, there's jokes about it. You know, it's like, yeah, I can speak in Japanese like fluently. And they're like, yo, like I didn't understand anything that you said. And they try to speak me in English, you know, or, you know, um, like if I'm with Japanese people, they'll look or people that appear Asian, you know, uh, like they'll speak Japanese. They'll only talk to them, even though I'm like paying the bill, you know, like that type of stuff. I have to check myself as a black person. Like for, first and foremost, I'm like, yo, did they do that? Cause I'm black or is it because I'm a foreigner? You know, like sometimes I have to ask myself, um, but then, you know, if I observe a little bit, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. It's like, I have to deal with some Japanese people, like white people. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if they're just having a bad day or like, 
they're just thrown off by the fact that not many people that look like me come around. So it's just different. Or it's like, yo, like I actually don't like black people because every black person I've seen in, in mainstream media are like violent. They're, you know, they're going to steal from me. You know, they're, you know, they're just, they're loud or something, you know, you know, whatever negative stereotype you have, you know, I've heard it from, I've heard it all, you know, from people. It's like, oh, I thought you were going to be this way because I've only seen people like you on the movie screen, on the TV screen, and you're always scary, you know, so. That's the thing, right? For the U.S., especially because Hollywood is here, but previous to the U.S., even Great Britain, one of their cultural exports has been not only colonialism, but this kind of internalized colonialism and this hierarchy of races and white supremacy, right? So in Japan, it sounds like it's a combination of their own nativism mixed with the white supremacy they learned from not just American media, but probably American GIs. They saw like, oh, even with the American military here, there's like a hierarchy, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because it's not like they have a long history with all of these different races or with black people, right? So it's kind of a heuristic. It's kind of a shortcut. Well, you know, it's not all equal. We can't treat everybody the same. Yeah. So let's look at the blueprint the West has created and let's just copy off of that. Yeah. And that's why then whiteness, even if they're not as good sometimes, I would even say sometimes they might be elevated. I've seen Asians where like, you know, there's an opposite extreme where sometimes they'll want their kid to marry a white person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like the nativism multiplied by the steroid of whiteness. And now you're going to yeah, have yeah. this like uber kid who's the master of the universe, right? Yeah, like Son Gohan versus Son Goku. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, he's 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 half he's half Saiyajin. So he's going to be like Super Saiyan 2, like faster and, and stronger. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Hey, man, I've seen it, too. <laughs> then they just learn that hierarchy. And that is why also then whiteness is still, in this universe at least, it becomes the supreme race, right? They also don't have to worry about police violence or mass incarceration like Black people do in the U.S., nor can other countries even replicate this. So the bite isn't even comparable. And so sometimes like white people will go somewhere and they will claim that they face racism when it's more like having been so used to white privilege that not having the same privilege as they've always had is shocking to them. It's shocking, yes. Yeah, and I think, yeah, if those people having those existential crises, you know, you can go one of two ways, or is there several ways you can go, but like the two ways that I've seen the most, like some people just say, oh, you know, I'll just put my head down and I'll be the model um, guest, you know? So they're the ones that kind of start to gatekeep other people like me. I, I'll speak up and I'll say, you know, this is this is wrong, you know? Um, the treat, you know, we should just be people first. Like if, okay, if I, if I know, for example, I'm trying to start a life here. I shouldn't be treated like I'm a perpetual guest. Like I'm always going to be like one foot out the door. Um, and then you have the other people that are like, yeah, you know, like um, they sheepdog people, you know, they, they kind of, I don't want to say that they mollify people like me or mollify, you know, other foreigners, but you have a certain element, I think, um, especially at least from, from what I've seen in the in the foreign community in, in the in the Kanto area, like uh, you know Tokyo metro area, where they go along to get along, and they start to replicate the hierarchies in their home countries, and that kind of serves to you know keep the status quo intact. Uh, where you know you got this you know group over here, and we're at the top, and you just need to know your place in this group too, you know and 
And if you don't like it, you can leave. You know, there's always that understated, you know, that that undercurrent, like, you know, unstated, um, you know, command there, you know, like, yeah, if you don't like it, you like you can get out. You can get out this country, you know, like this is America, like, even though you, we're not in America, you know. <laughs> um, and I. Um, yeah, like I'm glad you mentioned that, that that kind of that fetishization of like white skin, you know, like the pale skin thing is always kind of, it's always been kind of like. It's fascinating to me, man. Like, yeah, you know, you have some people that get elevated. It's like, yeah, you know, his mama is, you know, French and his daddy is like, you know, a quarter Czech and like, but like both of them are like half of Japanese. And it's like, yeah, now like they're this super kind of like, they're not quite quote unquote pure Japanese, but they're, they're in another category, like a special category where they're, they're one of the good ones, you know? as long as you can speak in Japanese and I've had this discussion with my family too. It's like, yeah, you know, like you consider uh, people that have only one Japanese um, parent as Japanese and, you know, you get a lot of him and and hawing, you know, cause it really does. I mean, it really does depend on the, the identity or the, even the color of uh, the other parent, you know? So if, if, if the parent is the other parent is white, the non-Japanese parent is white, they get a completely different experience. And if the, other parent is like um black or brown and i you know i've seen it firsthand you know um, um not to talk too much about my own um, um situation but like yeah i've seen it firsthand where you know a lot of people who are they are reluctant to actually face the facts of the matter um they kind of just brush it off and they just say yeah you know it's just we're all just people first and foremost but um or they they kind of um put people that have mixed heritage into just one box without really analyzing, really getting in there and, and digging deep. Um, because it is a painful thing for a lot of children and a lot of people that have come up, you know, like there, there's a learning curve to like accepting who you are. Um, and if who you are is, it doesn't match up with the mainstream or like the, the particular in group of where you are, then, you know, for some people it sucks, you know, um, I get it. Cause you know, I've, I've been in that situation where I've been the only black person in the room, um, in a space that was not for me or for people that look like me. And then I had to come to that slow realization for, for myself, you know, um, it hurts less if you go into the situation with your eyes open and you're, you're aware of the fact that you might be going into a hostile, hostile space. But for a lot of people, you know, some of my friends, even that, that identify as black, they're like, no, I didn't know that I couldn't be here or that I wasn't supposed to be um, this good or, you know, in this position. You know, um, that's why you get a lot of cases, you know, in academia, you know, uh, of imposter syndrome, you get people like, you know, sideways shading you and like kind of like trying to chop you down because they they were conditioned to believe that you're not good enough or that blackness equals like deficiency or, or it, it equals poverty or it equals just less than, you know, um, a lot, of, a lot of black people did not come up that way. Um, you know, for me, I, I was never taught that I was less than because I was black. I just had to be, I was taught that I would be treated as such. And I had to act accordingly. I had to be sure that people understood that, no, I'm just as good as you if not better, you know, um, and you're not going to treat me like that. I'm not going to be a doormat for anybody. And that, that in my experience, um, has 
you know, it's, it's handcuffed me or it, it's, it's served to be kind of a, uh, an obstacle, um, in terms of like, quote unquote, getting ahead in the entertainment industry here. Cause you got a lot of people in the same in America, I'm sure, you know, you know, we had this discussion all the time. Like, uh, I don't like to use the word sellout or anything like that, but like, yeah, you know, if you're, you're willing to like kind of get on camera and be a caricature of yourself or, you know, kind of do some clown shit and, um, the, the hill and the, and the mountain that you have to climb to like get to wherever you're trying to go is probably a little less steep than if you kind of hold firm and try to stay, um, stay true to who you are and, and try to represent, um, you know, people that look like you well. And if you try to maintain your integrity, you know, so it's one of those things like, yeah, it, it's, it's a universal thing, but it's, um, it, there's differences definitely. If you're a square peg, but you're willing to become a round peg to fit into the round hole that they already have cut out, that they already have, you know, envisioned and decided that this is your role as a black person, then it's going to be a lot easier to fit in there than to insist like, no, I'm not a round peg. I'm a square peg and I'm going to be true to who I am, right? Then it's going to be resistance. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Some people are just lazy, man. Like I hate to put it, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not one to, to, to down any other, anybody else's like hustle, whatever. Like sometimes people just like, yo, fuck it, man. Like I'm tired. Like I need to make some money, you know, like they're just like, I've been putting in this grind, trying to fight this system for like five years. You want me to do that in the commercial? Okay. I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Some people, you know, I've, I've had a discussion. It's like, yeah, you know, I did it cause you know, it was quick money and like, if I wasn't, if, if I weren't the person to do it, it was going to be somebody else. So why not just go ahead and do it? You know? And, um, for me, um, you know, I've had, I guess I've had my weak moments or whatever, you know, and there's things that I've maybe, you know, some people could, you know, if you go back and if anybody's like that interest, I don't think anybody's that interest. You can go back and comb through my history of appearances on like Japanese media. It's like, Oh, that's kind of questionable. That's kind of, you know, mm. um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to be in entertainment. It's tough to be, uh, a foreigner in a foreign land, you know, and, and then also you layer on top of that blackness or like any type of like difference, you know, it's going to be that much harder. It's going to be a multiplier or exponentially harder, you know? So why, you know, you hear some people say, you know, you're, you're a guest, you know? Um, and especially from people that come from colonized lands, like people, I know people that come from the, from the continent from the continent of Africa, I should say, um, that say, yeah, you know, um, you just get along to get along because they've already dealt with, you know, imperialism and colonialism, neo-colonialism. Like they're, they're familiar with how to just carve out a space for themselves, even though it might not be the ideal situation, you know, they're still surviving in some cases and in very select cases, some people are thriving, 
Um, but the majority of people, you know, they're like, you know, we're just trying to get along and get along. Um, and we're not trying to cause any trouble. We're just trying to build a foundation for the next generation. So don't cause trouble. Don't make too much noise. Well, I've heard that even in the U.S. I've had black friends tell me they felt preferential treatment for their other friends who might be black, but actually from Africa or black, but from Jamaica. Even within, you know, anti-blackness, there's even layers to where you're from, right? There's actually historical stuff even about sports, especially baseball, where a lot of American black athletes and baseball players pretended to be from Latin America because they got treated better than a black person from here. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on the historical, like, yeah, man, background of like trying not to be black, man. I'm not black. I'm Cuban. Yeah, yeah, I'm Cuban. Or like, I got I got Indian in my blood, man. Or, you know, like, yeah, we from Barbados or something. Like, you, you, yeah, you, the, you could run the gamut, you know, of like trying to obscure being uh, a descendant of enslaved people, you know, is it has a long history, like throughout the world, you know, like, yeah, I'm different. I'm I'm outside of that, that space that is reserved for people that are the foundation or the, the gristle for the capitalist, like, like grindstone, you know, it's, um, it sucks because I, I've seen it firsthand where people are trying to tokenize themselves because they know like, that's probably their best shot at like not having to feel the foot of oppression on their necks. And, um, you, you see it all the time. It's just, it's different iterations of it, but you see it often if you, if you're looking for it, obviously. It's not going to be one for one, but it does seem to like mechanically work the same way as when Asian Americans look down upon new Asian immigrants as fobs, right? Fresh off the boat. That's like this derogatory term to say that they're different from us. So even within this diaspora, we're going to rank each other and we're going to say who's better and who's worse. Yeah. So I would, off mic, I would have conversations with some of my Asian and Asian American friends like, because there's so many parallels and there's so many things that we can uh, we can draw comparisons to within our respective communities, the only way to topple white supremacy and the only way to really affect real change, you got to ally with each other. You, you have to draw an alliance with each other. And you have to understand the commonalities that have oppressed us, you know, both or, you know, us all, you know, in, in, in similar ways, because there's so many, there's so many through lines that like, they're like completely like they're like they're almost so intertwined that they're just one through line like where you can say okay the reason why we we do this is because this shit happened in in china in like 100 you know 150 years ago or like you know you got that um chinese exclusion act you know versus like jim crow like in the black codes like all that stuff is connected man we could go back to the start of the colonization of the americas right what was the whole point what were they trying to find? It was trying to find passage to India and China, right? Like, where that damn Silk Road at, man? <laughs> Shit. Like, let's bring these black people to try to like make sure we can like exploit even further the world's resources. Yeah, it's it's you know, and then and and for me, like people would ask me in these activist groups, and you know, I would do work on the street and tr trying to do outreach, political education, all that. I'm like, well, you know, um, you have to know that this song and dance is not new. Like that's the first step, you know, in terms of like really fighting the good fight, you, you don't want to fight the same fight over and over again, man, because that's what white supremacy wants you to do. They want you, you know, they want you to waste the energy of people that are oppressed. You know, if you keep them scattered, 
then they can't they can't mount any like real um, fight against the things that are oppressing them. You actually gave a good example of how capitalism is tied to white supremacy, because you as an actor or model, like you said, sometimes you had to do those questionable things just because you were tired or you just needed the money. Right. You called it a weak moment, but capitalism will force those weak moments because you need money. So when you need money, then it forces you, it forces workers and even forces people of color to do things that might go against their own moral code just to survive. Right. And so that's why you can't separate white supremacy from capitalism. And that's something that, you know, when you move further to the left, that you understand. And, you know, there's so many different strains within the left. And I I would say this is more of like part of the left that is of a probably more black radical tradition, right? Writers and thinkers like uh, Frantz Fanon or Walter Rodney. I'm not a black person, but even as a person of color, those are like the people that I looked up to or read because the other stuff I was reading. I didn't connect with. I was like, this doesn't seem like it explains what I went through. And so reading the other writers and the way they expanded where it's like, okay, this is how you take Marxism and expand it and use it for yourself to make it apply to you. Then it's like, oh, okay, this is how I make this apply to me. Even though my experiences is a one for one, the same as Frantz Fanon, let's say, right? There's a lot of tools and formulas that he's giving out that are more broad based that I can apply for myself and also like explaining how there's this like white supremacy, anti-black spectrum and I fit in there. Right. And we're all trapped in there and it's all still within the confines of capitalism as well. And that capitalism itself is racialized. So how did you become politicized where you're further out than liberal and got hip to these more radical traditions? That's a good question because it's very hard to like pinpoint one moment where I was like, okay, now I'm radicalized. Were your parents like this radical or? Yes and no. So um, not to air too much of my dirty laundry, I could say this, like because of the fact that I'm, you, 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 you just mentioned like one of the kind of key features of like the Black experience in the South, you have a lot of people, you have an overrepresentation um, in the armed forces of Black Americans, uh, African-American or people that are of African descent. Um, because of the fact, um, it, it, it still is looked at on as, uh, looked upon as a, um, as a, as a, as a tool of social mobility. Um, if you look at the Montgomery GI Bill, um, one of the, one of the key factors of creating the middle class in the United States of America, uh, was, uh, joining the military, getting that VA loan and, and getting a, 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 a base of, of uh, capital, which is your house, right? And that wasn't um, accessible to many Black Americans um, in the in the 20th century, um, but it was it was dangled as a, as a as a feature of the American dream. And you had some people that could access it through the military. You know, if you you moved up the ranks, yeah, you can you can build some uh, some financial stability, and you can you can create a better life uh, for the next generation. Which which did happen in my family. You know, where you had people that were um, career, um, military people. And they, they built businesses, they built, um, lives for themselves through that. Um, so, but I, I think, and I'm sure there are scholars out there that have dissected this more, you know, I've done my own research about like radicalism within the military and within the armed forces. Um, so like I said before, my father um, was army, my stepfather was Navy, got a lot of people in my family that were air force. Um, 
know, a few a few devil dogs out there, a few Marines. Um, I did some research um, myself. You know, um, I had been approached by recruiters um, when I was in high school. You know, like I I, I knew um, early on, like before I joined high school, that I didn't want to like kill people. Um, but it was, you know, for those of you that have played like video games, you know, it, it becomes you become desensitized to like on screen violence, you know. So I, you know, the, one of the first wars, I, you know, wars of imperialism I remember is, you know, um, the excursion in Kuwait and Iraq, you know, and you see the tracer uh, bullets like just flying in the air. It's like glowing green. You see the stuff and it doesn't look real like these people are like dying, you know, on, on ABC News, you know. Um, I knew deep down something was wrong about it because my dad would tell me, you know, like when you're talking about like uh, Americans uh, or the American, uh, in the American empire, like fooling around in, in, in Africa, for example, or like Grenada, you know, I, I heard about that from my dad. You know, I, you know, we watched CNN growing up, like, you know, Grenada, I, mean, I was just listening to a podcast with Grenada, about Grenada the other day, you know, like, and um, shout out to my namesake, you know, shining jewel um like maurice you know um he represented a threat maurice bishop um he represented a threat to american imperialism right at you know in the quote-unquote backyard of america um so i i knew about this stuff because i i'm you know i was one of those kids i was a know-it-all you know I, i was a bookworm early on i started reading when i was like two or three years old um so i can't say there was a moment a particular moment when i was like yo like i need to be on the left, like I grew up reading, like Souls of Black Folk, W. B. Du Bois, um, John Henry Clark, um, people that you know, like Du Bois, you know, was kind of he moved, you know, he's a full on communist by the time he died. But like I read some of the early works, and I read some of his later essays. You know, went after he broke with the NAACP. I was just having, a, you know, kind of an argument about um, his stance on like the talented Tiff. Um, but something always kind of something always kind of nagged at me when I, when I would join spaces that were talking about like black empowerment or uplifting the black people, because, you know, there, there's the unstated thing that, Oh, you know, some black people don't know any better. Or, you know, we have black on black crime where even within our own community, you're pathologizing, you know, black behavior. And it was like, okay, is it a deficit culture? Is it just because we're black that we act this way? Or is it some other factor? Like there was, it was, I was always asking that question internally like why why it does it seem like we're the only ones that are dealing with this stuff and then when i started reading more like i want to say like really you know it kind of coincided with puberty man like i was like reading a lot of stuff you know like james baldwin um uh reading like zoronia hurston um just just i was reading a wide range of things of black thinkers france and all you know john hope franklin was you know he's kind of mainstream but it's like yeah like just knowing the history of people uh, and and starting to draw those comparisons, seeing that um, I already knew that I'm going to be to the left. I'm always for the underdog. I remember seeing a picture because I had this, I forget what it was. It was like a black history, like a survey book or whatever. Maybe it was, maybe it was one of John Hope Brings things, but it was one of those things where uh, when I was like in second grade, we would do like a black history quiz, right? It was like for black history month, we have like a quiz bowl. And I was like quiz bowl champion. Like I would beat everybody in jeopardy and all that. And I remember seeing this picture. I, I, I think I was probably about seven or eight years old. And it was a picture of Nat Turner. Um, and it was like a, a, it was an illustration of the depiction of when he surrendered uh, to the people that were looking for him after 
uh, he um, he initiated the uprising in Virginia, and he had um, he had a sword, and the and the white person that was standing across from him, he had a gun. So I was, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking like, yo, why didn't he like try to like, why didn't he have a gun, <laughs> like to fight this this white dude that's trying to capture him? Like, why why couldn't he like hit him with, you know, hit him with some crazy like sword move and then like run away? You know, I was thinking. I was creating this narrative of, from this one picture, and that's when I knew I'm like, okay, I'm always cheering for the underdog, underdog, um, because I knew I was an underdog. I had been the underdog from day one, you know, from from what my parents had taught me. You know, um, I can say that there was a black radical t- tradition in my house. I wouldn't say like, you know, my dad or my mom weren't like card carrying members of like the Black Panther Party or something like that. Would you say though that having so many military people in your family, they became more critical and more aware of American empire then? I think it's one of those things where if if you're in the imperial core, imperialist court, um, and you're one of the, the enactors of state violence, you're going to have a percentage of those people that are going to become disillusioned. And, and, you know, if you go to any VA hospital anywhere in the United States or anywhere where there's a, a military base in the world, you're going to have some people that got a story about how the military screwed them over. Right. And you see it even, you know, it, it gets consumed in mainstream media even more, you know, um, with people coming, coming, you know, they, they, they join the military with, you know, PTSS or PTSD. It's like, no, man, like that happened because of the fact that you join this, this, this uh, force of destruction. Um, so for me, um, for, for shout out to like Robert F. Williams, you know, like uh, people that don't know about him. He was a um, activist back in the 20th century based in North Carolina. He was a uh, former military, but he was, he was the other side of the civil rights movement of, of the peak of the civil rights movement, where there is a implicit and explicit threat of violence to in to to uh enable uh the uh the equality um that were that was promised to all citizens of the united states so you know you have you know you have a lot of people on the left um or liberals i should say they're like oh you know we should really follow martin luther king's uh teachings of peace and nonviolence. Da, da, da. it's like no man like um any revolution anything that when we talk about like a demand, like, you know, you can get out on the street and say Black Lives Matter, but like, you ain't got no damn demand. Like, what are you doing? You just out there, you got a drum circle and you're just, you're just, this is just a masturbatory like uh, um, performance, you know, like, is there a demand for something? You know, you can, you can say, oh, stop Asian hate. Well, how are you going to stop Asian hate? How are you going to, how are you going to assert that a Black life matters to somebody? Um, when somebody was saying, okay, we need to get the Voting Rights Act passed, uh, or we need to have a march on Washington. Um, there was criticism for, like, for example, the march on Washington in '63. Um, you got all these people marching on Washington compared to, like, the, you know, January 6th thing that happened this year. Um, those people were taught to be nonviolent back in 1963, but the sheer mass of people is an implicit threat to the elites. You have to have. You have to have a threat of violence. I, you know, some people, they don't like to talk about that, especially in left circles. They're like, oh, we can we can just vote our way to freedom and we can just, you know, kumbaya our way to equality and equity and and, and full rights for all of the citizens. No, man, like Robert F. Williams said, yo, like I, I'm strapped, like I'm strapped. And um, 
if you come and try to mess with me, then you might get a cap, you know, in your face, you know, or you might get slapped up first, you know, but um, there is always that implicit threat of violence. So you see that in the black military where it's like, yo, we got trained. So like the red summer was, um, you know, it's a direct result of that. You know, you got people, you know, black GIs that were out there fighting for American imperialism or fighting for freedom or whatever. And they come back and they get treated like second class citizens again. Like, wait a minute. I got full military training, dog. Like, I'm not going to take this. Like, and, but, and then the white people see that, like, yo, this, this, this person right here knows how to in, enact violence on the other people. We got to, we got to preempt this, you know? So that's why you had so much um, racial violence in um, the Red Summer, um, you know, right after World War uh, One, uh, where you, there's a, there's an, there's a reflexive knowledge amongst, um uh, people that that propagate white supremacy that they know there there's always a fear of reprisal american history is is nothing but a, a reflex of like fear of reprisal fear of, fear of reprisal you know someone asked me the other day like what what type of revolutionary um um moment in time would you say was uh had the most effect on you and i i, I was telling like first first thing that comes to mind is like haitian revolution a lot of people think, oh, like Haitian Revolution, they 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 might know a couple of names, and you know, like Dessalines or like uh, Toussaint Louverture, but they don't talk about like, okay, what were uh, what were the 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 aftermaths of that? You know, like what happened after that? Like, why do we why why did the Louisiana Purchase happen? Why did why did all these things um, happen after the fact? Or even to this day, like uh, you know, a lot of people don't know about the occupation of Haiti. Um, later on, like in the, in the 20th century, like America was like in there, like they were in there, <laughs> like troops were like occupying, you know, this island um, that made the the unforgivable sin of like actually winning um, a war against white people. Um, so for me, and, and that and that was a violent revolution. There was armed struggle. People were dying, you know. So I think um, for me, um, the military um, the milieu of like armed forces or, or, or people that I respected or that I looked up to as like the strongest people, like my dad or someone, you know, like even my stepfather, you know, my uncles, grandparents, my granddad, you know, my great grandfather was registered for World War One and World War Two. You know, I found out like those people knew how to use a gun, man. Um, and don't pull the thing out unless you plan to bang. Right. You know, <laughs> don't even aim unless you plan to hit something, you know, like it. It's 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 there in the background always. Um, so for me, I they they don't have to talk about it because they knew implicitly they're trained to kill, they're trained to to enact violence. And for me, like I'm not gonna go around like slapping people up. You know, you have to politically educate people to get ready to do that type of stuff uh, to be revolutionary. Um, because a lot of people are not ready for that. A lot of people are comfortable, comfortably numb, if you will, like to quote Pink Floyd, you know. Um, so I think um, there are a lot of contradictions and a lot of tensions there. If you join the military, OK, who are you enacting that violence upon? Right. Like uh, if you're joining the American military, right, you're enacting violence on the global south just by doing that. But some people join not even thinking about that. Right. Because that's a feature of capitalism. Right. I'm joining because I need to pay my bills. Right. I got debt. You know, my mom needs to keep her lights on or like my sister needs help with her her baby or something like that. You know, people, a lot of people are not seeing beyond like the, the, the basic necessities of life when they join the military and then they can they can go forward, you know, 
um, and, and progress in, in terms of like revolutionary politics, something like that. So I think um, for me, a black radical tradition can sprout out of, you know, those contradictions. Um, so for me, I, like it's, I, it's a long, like indirect answer. I'm like, yeah, there was no real pinpointed like moment in time where I'm like, yeah, like I'm a black radical. Like I can, I now I have, you know, I'm a grown man. Now I have language for it. But like when I was, when I was in a room, so I went to a private school that will remain nameless um, in the, uh, in Atlanta or in College Park to be, uh, to be exact. Um, That was, it used to be, um, and anybody actually listen to it, if they Google, if they know how to Google, like it used to be the Georgia Military Academy. Um, once upon a time and the first black graduate that they had was uh, in the 70s. Um, so this was a feeder school for all of those, um, you know, military like the Citadel, West Point, uh, Air Force Academy and all that. So um, y- you kind of talked about it in the last uh, one of the last episodes I caught uh, with Avery, uh, where we're talking about like the origins of like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or like the origins of like a lot of martial arts comes out of like a parochialism or out of like a conservative uh, mindset, you know. So imagine like uh, for me, like I, even in the black spaces, people that are military minded, they're still very concerned about the chain of command and hierarchy and you do as you're told, you know, um, but flip that you have people that are white come from old money. And, and when, and whenever someone would say that to me in the South, they're like, yo, I come from old money. It's like, okay, where'd that money come from though, man? <laughs> you don't want to talk about like old, old money. Like you ain't new money. You old money. What does that mean? You, your money came from down, you know, enslaving people that look like me, man. Like, so like, shut up, shut your ass up. You know, like those people, as you go on, like people say, oh, like, oh, you just have to wait for old people to die. It's like, no, man, like these institutions replicate those mindsets. You know, it's the same that you see in, in, in combat circles where, oh, I got my lineage from, you know, Helio, you know, like, or like, um, or something like that. The Gracies from, you know, the Gracies are white folks, man. They're, they're white immigrants that, that exploited, you know, the locals. Settlers. They're settlers. They're settlers. They're settler colonialist. <laughs> Count Coma Maeda-san is a settler colonialist. It comes from exploiting the global South. That that art that you love so much, and you say it's all about like you know, um, you know, being equal on the ground and all. Nah, man, like only rich people could do that shit for a certain amount of time, you know. And even when you you saw it exported to the United States, it's like yeah, like these people are like shoulder to shoulder with people that are beating black and brown people upside the head on the streets, you know, like, um, there was, you know, I know I might catch some flack for this. Um, and I don't know if you've already talked about it, like, okay, like Gracie breakdown, you know, like these people are giving clinics to, you know, um, uh, police officers and, and, and military people on how to better restrain, you know, perps and, and criminals, you know, it's like, if everybody could train like this and we wouldn't have the, uh, you know, uh, or the, the countless police shootings of police involved shootings, you know, like people getting shot in the back by the police, you know, like, yeah, if he knew some jujitsu, if he had like a purple, like everybody should have a purple belt in jujitsu, man. Like uh, if you want to be a cop, you should have a college degree and you have, you have purple belt. Like nobody would die, man. It's like, nah, man. So <laughs> you mean to tell me like, if this dude knows how to pull, you know, like I'm, I'm just sitting around minding my business, minding my own black business, um, not doing anything. If I, if I get, if I get an interaction from a person that can 
pull me into an omoplata or like a gogo plata and choke me out, like I might not die. Like I'm still, I still got choked out in the middle of the street, dog. Like, so there's still stay violence there, you know? So, um, a lot of people, they, they tend to ignore the fact that, um, some of the, 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 the things that are kind of liberatory or they think that will set them free are still like rooted in their oppression. Um, and, um, one of my fights as someone who is black and I, I, you know, like I said before, like that black radical tradition was always in the background, like, um, you know, Malcolm X, you know, Marcus Garvey, um, a Pan-Africanist, a Pan-Africanist view too, an internationalist view, because I'm a black man, I'm an African and from America in another land that has to fight um, stereotypes and has to, to combat, you know, those negative things every day. Um, um, my fight is also within my own community to kind of make people understand, like they're in the fight too. Like no matter if you keep your head down and you just say, I'll be one of the good ones and I'll try to acquiesce to whiteness or, you know, uh, the Japanese version of whiteness or what they, they think that blackness is like, you're still in that fight and you have to, you have to be educated on what that fight is. And if you don't, then you're in the way, you know, um, same with like, you know, people would talk about like, oh, like, uh, did Harriet Tubman, like she, you know, she, you know, the quote is like, oh, she, there were so many people out there that she, uh, she freed. Um, but there was people out there that didn't know that they were enslaved, you know, that I feel the same way, you know, not to really compare myself to Harriet Tubman, but it's like, yeah, like a lot of times you, you talk to people and I'm sure you've seen this too, like in, in, in Asian and Asian American circles where it's like, yeah, like you think you got it good because you, you have the, the white picket fence and you have 2.2 children and, like they went to school and they became an engineer or a doctor or whatever. It's like, no, man, like we're not free until we're all free or that we all can actually partake in, in, um, in society as equals and, and equitably, you know? So that's, that's my fight um, in terms of like making sure uh, the tradition of like being educated um, of what the struggle has led up to, to this point um, is, you know? So um, yeah, it's, um, and, and and one of the reasons why I got into MMA and, and fighting is like, yeah, you know, um, I think Dr. Horn mentioned it, you know, like there's there's an ego, um, there's an egalitarian like factor. Right. Like if you good, you good. Right. Like you can't people can't take that away from you. Like if you're like with the fights that we just saw in UFC uh, 265. Right. So to bring it to that, like Cyril. He good, man. Like you can say whatever you want to about like um, if Dana White mistreated um, um, Francis, you know, in Ghana. Um, but you can't deny Cyril good, man. He's good. <laughs> he is good. And like you, and, and I could say the same, like, you know, I had my own interactions with a lot of black, um, like prominent black uh, mixed martial artists um, where it's like, OK. They they know. They have a limited shelf life. They have to keep their head down and just focus on the craft. Um, so to be someone like, for example, like a Muhammad Ali to like to put, pull your shoulders back and keep your chin up and say, OK, you know, I stand for this while I'm being the best. You know, that shit is hard. Right. It's almost um, unforgivable for some people because, you, you know, you see it all the time on, on, on social media or online. And it's like, oh, I, I, I shut up and dribble. Right. Or like, why can't they just keep it about the sport? Right. It's like, no, man, because a lot of people get into fighting like that look like me or like that, you know, okay, so you could, if we want to use an Asian person as an example, Manny Pacquiao, he's, 
you know, maybe his politics aren't that liberatory, but guess what? He got a whole country on his back, man. And people walk around with their chin up high because of the fact that he beat somebody that is from the, 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 the global North, if you will. You know, it's like, yeah, like that's our guy and we can, we can move around. And that, that, that psychic motivation is sometimes what people need to like survive, you know? Um, part of their identity is, is, is tied up in the fact that, yeah, like if he can do it, um, maybe I can too. Maybe I can go out and, and be a better version of myself. So like for me, even like, I'm like, yeah, you know, I want people to look at me as a source of inspiration, even if I'm not that good of a fighter, you know, like, um, if I got you know, a victory is a victory, you know, getting in the ring to me is a victory because most people can't do the shit, you know, even if you, you sit and uh, do the armchair, like analysis, like, a lot of people that analyze fighting or combat sports have never really like felt that pressure, you know, like getting in there and maybe get humiliated in front of like thousands or millions of people, you know. Um, so to be able to do that <clears throat> is liberatory in and of itself, you know, like uh, somebody like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, um, uh, Bojack, you know, like uh, uh, Dr. Horan mentioned someone like a Bojack or like a. Uh, uh, Jack Johnson for, you know, like Joe Lewis, you know, like my, my uncle's named after Joe Lewis. Cause you know, he represented, he's a military guy, but he's a leftist too. You know, um, um, one of my kids named Ray, you know, Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, these people, they represent something to the, to the, to the oppressed, um, because, uh, fighting spirit, you know, it, it counts for a lot hope, you know, it, it means something for people that have been beaten down by life and by, you know, the, the systems that oppress us. So um, when you get in the sport, especially combat sport, like to get in there and to show that, yeah, like I am just good at this thing, you know, that affords me that freedom of movement. And that's what something that I've always wanted is like just freedom of movement, man. Like, you know, let me, let me fail as a person, first and foremost, you know, like as uh, to be a black person, you know, it's like, oh, you got to like, try to like be the best or be twice as good just to get half as, much you know like i i got i got taught that early on it's like no like liberation looks like yo i need i have i have that freedom to fail like if i get in there and i get my ass beat then so be it man like i'm just another person like i but i'm not going to be restricted in my choices in my life you know just because i have a certain amount of uh, melanin in my skin you know um and i think um yeah like seeing you know i'm conflicted like when i when i watch uh combat sports especially like ufc with people that have like regressive politics um, um like a dana white you know where it's like yeah you know they're playing he's he and like the management they're playing these people's uh hopes and aspirations against one another because you know in the end it kind of benefits um uh, ultimately um uh, the company and the capital um but you can't take away the fact like yeah like for example when Nganu like finally got Stipe, you know, like his whole country is like cheering, you know, like everybody is cheering. Like he got the whole country on his back, you know, you can't, there's, you can't take away from that, you know, um, same for, you know, now, 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 um, Cyril's in the driver's seat, you know, like people are talking like, oh, he looks like he could be the one to def dethrone the king, you know, cause they are former training partners. How do you think they actually match up style wise? I, I mean, for my, you know, Dan, Dan Cormier mentioned it at the end, you know, um, of the fight. Once, uh, they, um, Cyril got the stoppage, I think, um, it's pretty simple. If Cyril can, 
if he can dictate the pace, he can score. Um, he chops up that front leg, and he doesn't allow um, he doesn't allow Francis to like start going downhill. So if you if you watch the fight with um, Rosenstrike, um, when um, Ngannou knocked out Rosenstrike in like twenty five seconds or forty eight seconds, whatever. Um, if you watch the slope, uh, the, the the replay in slow mo, Rosenstrike actually um, he scores a couple of things that you know if he actually stood his ground. Um, the fight would have been stretched out. You know, who knows how it would have gone. But he allowed, he was backing up. He allowed um, Francis to just keep going forward, to bull, to bull forward, and then he gets caught at the end once he runs out of space against the cage. So I think Cyril, he's bigger um, than uh, Rosenstruck, um, just heavier and taller. Um, so I think that won't be an issue. But we don't know. The, the X factor is the mind games, you know, because we don't know what happened as you know as training partners when they train together you know who was a big brother you know you know who you know because you're you know like if you train like you know there's people in your head sometimes like yeah man he got me and i i gotta i gotta try to get him back or like or we we left off on the wrong foot like he got me and then he left the gym like shit like i, I want that one back you know um and that's the honor of like a sportsman too it's like you know they probably won't tell but you know there's a lot of drama behind the scenes that we don't know about because that that happens you know you can be very intimate with somebody as a training partner, but still not be friends, but like you still have that respect as fellow practitioners of the sport. So we don't know, like, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I don't have any inside information on that. I wish I did. Like who was actually the big brother on that? Cause Cyril good, man. Like I, I can't really, there's a, there's a few holes in his game, you know, but like, you know, um, same with Francis, like there's still some holes in this game, but like, okay, can you know, it's same with like Khabib, you know, like, People say, oh, man, he can't strike, da 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 It was like, yo, but, and he said it himself. He's like, yo, but you know what's coming, but can you stop it, you know? Can you stop? You know what's coming. Can you stop it? And that's the, that's the mark of a, a true, you know, great practitioner of whatever style it is. Like, yo, you already know what I'm about to do, man, so it's up to you to stop it, you know? And I'm going to talk my shit if you can't stop it. So I think um, if Cyril, like I said, if he can – um, the front leg, he has to he has to restrict um, Francis's movement by chopping up that leg, um, uh, and he has to you know he has to watch for the counter because Francis, you know he I think he did come up as a boxer, and, but a lot of times you know for me again like my first love is boxing. Um, I, I appreciate uh, American style wrestling, like folk style wrestling, like catch wrestling and all that. Like I think if you combine wrestling and boxing. Like good takedown defense, like you have the prototype of a champion. Obviously, you sprinkle in some submission defense, um, but just don't get taken down. And being able to like take someone down and control their movement, um, I think is key. Uh, Francis obviously is working on that because you know, um, in the rematch with Stipe, I think um, once he established, yeah, well, you ain't gonna be able to just lay on me and make me carry my weight and yours. That was the the key um, to allow to open up the chance for the knockout. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, it's still, you know, Cyril's uh, wrestling, he, he has submissions, he has wrestling, but it remains to be seen like that, that mental game, you know, like once he gets touched, you know, because he hasn't really been touched by somebody with the power of, of Francis, because um, a lot of that stuff goes out the window, you know, the, you know, jujitsu saying is like, yeah, a black belt can become like a, a blue belt with the right punch, right? Um, so um, I think um, if, uh, Cyril is careful of any counter strikes once he starts to to work his do his thing on the outside. Um, if Francis can actually get on the inside and then maybe 
tire Cyril out, maybe we can see a real barn burner. But, you know, it could, I feel like it could go one or two ways. Like it could be really boring because they know each other all the way. Or it could be one of those things where, yeah, Cyril, you know, he's just like, yo, let's go. Like, (laughs) mon ami, let's go. And he just, he just chops up Francis's uh, front leg. And then he, he opens up in the end, like he did with, um, um, my man, Black Beast, you know. Tell me about that. What did you think about Derek Lewis? Do you think he just fought badly or it was just that Gone was just that much better? Gone, I think it's both. I think um, Derek Lewis is what he is, man. Like he, he, people knew, I mean, like all the pundits are picking and I knew it too. Like, you know, you saw in the Volkov fight, he had to come from behind and get the knockout, right? Because he's sitting there waiting I think maybe, you know, again, I don't like to speak on anybody's mental health. I'm, I'm pro like going to therapy. I'm pro like sports psychology. When he started poking at his eye, cause my first fight, he, he gave me a flashback when he got hit with the clean punch and he started being like, Oh, like it was an eye poke. And then you see the replay. It was like a clean ass punch. He did that twice in the fight. I noticed too. So the second time I was like, what's going on? Yeah. So I think, you know, and you, if you look closely, in the um, in the the break between the first and second rounds, um, his eye was getting pink. You know, he he got caught. I think with the the part of the glove, you know, maybe the corner of the glove, like caught him once he got in. Uh, once he got the punch in there, so I think that was in his head too. So for me, as someone who had vision problems during fighting, I'm like, yo, as soon as you go for my eyes, I'm like, shit. Now I'm panicking. So I think that's what happened too. Is like a little bit of panic started happening, and he forgot the game plan of like maybe trying to weight gain, uh, gone out, like where he, you know, he's going to do his thing on the outside. He's moving like no other um, heavyweight is moving, you know, like he's moving like, you know, like someone, a couple of weight classes smaller, you know, he's moving like a welterweight, you know, he's just, he's picking his shots. We know that um, Lewis is not going to be able to move with him like that. He got to catch him when he gets a little bit tired. He he, he loses a step because Volkov is doing kind of the same thing. He's, he's picking his shots. He's very long, right? Um, but I think um, Cyril has that physicality that Volkov didn't have uh, towards the end of the fight where uh, Lewis rallies for the knockout because he he had scored with the overhand right before, right? right. So I didn't you, we I didn't see that happening for Lewis um, unless Cyril just you know for whatever reason forgot his game plan or he he just got caught with something. So I think from fundamental from a fun- fundamental standpoint like yeah Cyril sound like it was a bad matchup for Derek Lewis all the way so like a lot of people saying like yeah it's either going to be like Cyril on points or like rally KO like last second because we already knew like Derek has already mentioned before he had back problems um he had he had some injuries in the past and I'm like, yo, he like me, man. He's just like a bigger, better version of me. And he's like, he got vision problems, he got back problems. So he can't move as much, but he got the power. Um, so if you get touched by it, you already know what's about to happen. So just don't let him touch you and you can beat him, you know? Um, so I think um, Cyril, he, he, he just poses a bad matchup for anybody because he's really big and he's just as fast as you, you know? It's just one of those things like, yeah, like if you're super big, like, you know, you have a, uh, a mismatch in size like in the heavyweight division or maybe you, you can see it like in the light heavyweight division like some people are saying the same thing about um um izzy versus um lafoy well i always mess up his name polish power man jam Blafoyevich. um where it's like okay like izzy got the speed advantage so he can maybe score on points but like once uh jan um he nullified 
um, the striking, you know, speed and all that, then it was like, okay, now he could just, he can institute, he can just move and, and, um, bully him, use his size to kind of dominate, you know, use his wrestling to kind of dominate Izzy. Um, so I think, um, yeah, Derek, he, I think this is it for him in terms of like title aspirations, you know, unless somebody gets injured or Dana wants to play games in terms of the interim belts and all that. But like, he's an entertaining fighter. He says the right things to kind of, you know, he gives, he gives a red meat to the people who want to listen to like people like being a character and all that, you know? Um, but in terms of like being the, the, the guy, I, you know, I never saw, cause even, you know, when he fought Cormier, it was like, yo, if, if you got a bad back or you got stiff hips and you just got knockout power, when you go against the rest of man, it's going to be trouble, you know? And, and Cormier showed that, you know, um, same with, if he goes against someone like Stipe, Stipe has like pretty good wrestling. Um, and I think, um, the, you know, this is the next, ev- next step in evolution in, in, in the sport, you know, where you have a guy like Cyril Gaines. I think he's like what, uh, that Hardy dude is what, uh, th- that football player, Hardy, that's what people are looking at now. Like, you know, like they thought maybe Hardy would be what gain gone is now. Somebody who started late, but very athletic. Right. And then would become a natural. Yeah. Cause if I saw Cyril on the street, I'm like, yo, he played football, man. He plays like American football or rugby or something, you know, but then he starts doing, you know, he's like, oh, I'm a savant practitioner, my mon ami, you know, it's like, yeah, no, he can move, you know, like he has light feet. But he got the muscle. He has a, the right combination of fast twitch, slow twitch to like to impose his weight, but also move away and not be hit. You know, so that's the next evolution. Like all these people um, that are joining American football or like basketball or like any other sport um, instead of or, you know, instead of m- MMA. No, if the, 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 the fulcrum of power kind of shifts towards like, you know, boxing level of money. Like you'll start to see more and more people that look like Cyril Gaon and not, I think, where you have like just just super strong physical guys that actually are technically sound as well. I think we're going to see that from people from outside of the U.S. Because I think if you are within the U.S. and you're big and athletic, you're going to be pulled to other sports. But for somebody like Cyril Gaon or where you're from, one of these other countries that doesn't have American football, which American football epitomizes bigness and athleticism. But if your country doesn't have that... (laughs) then MMA actually does look enticing, right? Yeah, so I think, you know, maybe, you know, who knows, like, what's going to happen in the future, like, in the next 10, 15 years. But, I mean, I think you could see a similar thing that happened in the NBA where you see a, a an explosion of uh, of worldwide interest with people that are actually, like, you know, they they rival the physicality, the sheer physicality of, like, the American athletes, you know? Serbia. Yeah. If you if you have that that dynamic, maybe it can push that fulcrum of like, OK, where um, the UFC is only paying like 16 percent of like its revenue or if, of its you know gross revenue to the fighters. You know, like maybe that number can shift up towards like 50 percent. And then that's when you can start seeing like even more talented people, the people that might have joined, you know, some big guy from Texas that might have just stayed in American football, maybe he decides just to do MMA instead. And then that's when you start getting the super, like super duper stars, you know? Like superheroes, straight up. Yeah, straight up, like, yeah, out of a comic book, you know? Not like people that are super duper flawed, but like, you, we might have, I, I'm going to I'm gonna say something and it might get a lot of criticism when people listen. I don't think MMA has had its Michael Jordan moment yet. Um, some people would argue it's George. Some people could say maybe, um, John Jones 
or Anderson. I'm like, no, we, we haven't had that, that person that unequivocally is like, okay, he, we could say he's the greatest of all time. No like scandals in terms of like PEDs or, uh, any type of like, you know, bad behavior outside of the, uh, of the, the, the sporting arena where he's a global and universally known name, he or she, right? Um, I, I don't think MMA has had that yet. And I think, yeah, we're, we're getting closer to that. Like once you see people like Cyril, um, pop on the scene. Yeah. I think Cyril is a good example because you see him starting in his late twenties and he's like that then imagine a Ciro who's starting in his teens, right? And we haven't seen that yet, but we got a glimpse of that with him where we're seeing it in the last 10 years of somebody's MMA career from 30s to 40s. So I think this is a good way to end the show. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us about your experiences, about your thoughts, talking a little bit about MMA and UFC 265. So tell us where people can find you. My name is my name. You can find me on Twitter, Maurice Shelton. I'm on Instagram as well, maurice.l.shelton. Yeah, and um, if you like what you hear, keep listening, you know? (laughs) I would love to come back on. Thank you for having me, Sam. All right, thank you for coming on, and I'll put all your information in the show notes. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.